Good morning. It's always a privilege to stand up here in front of you, opening God's word. You know, I just, uh, I was just amazed and just enjoying the moving of the Holy Spirit as we worship together in song. And I'm so grateful for the gifts that the Lord gives to us in our church and how even when Pastor Rick is gone, the church continues to operate as the body of Christ. And that is a blessing. And that, uh, you know, from, from the welcomers to the ushers to the, the worship team to the teachers, on and on and on it goes, um, how we can encourage one another and build one another up in Christ. And it's, it's a privilege to be part of that this morning. So if you have... Uh, your Bible or on your device, please join me in turning to 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter 3, beginning in verse 8, and we're going to look at verses 8 through 17. If you need a Bible, uh, please raise your hand. Uh, one of the ushers will get you one um, to, to loan out this morning. This morning, I will be reading from the New American Standard um, translation. It might be a little different than, than what you're reading from, but the the meat of it is, is largely the same. 1 Peter 3.8. The Apostle Peter says this, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for, what is, for doing what is wrong. And so God, we thank you for your word this morning. Speak to us, um, prick our consciences, encourage us, move us to become more like your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his matchless name we pray. Amen. So I apologize. I forgot to invite you to stand up in honor of God and his word. But if you would do so, so kindly right now, please stand, greet your neighbor, introduce yourself to someone new around you. All right, so we've been at First Peter for a while, and Peter didn't write this letter in a vacuum. So I think it's important for us to go back and kind of summarize where we've been so far to understand the context of today's passage. That's really important as we, as we look at God's word and know that what was originally written to this uh, uh, first audience um, didn't just happen in a sterile environment. These were 
real men and women, boys and girls who are going through the ups and downs of life. And so as, as we look back on what we've uh, seen so far, we know that Peter wrote from the city of Rome, and we know this was approximately AD 62-63, right when the emperor Nero was beginning to persecute the church. So they were starting to uh, endure suffering at the hands of the emperor. He was writing to Jewish and Gentile believers in what is today the country of Turkey. And what was his overall purpose? It was to encourage believers to maintain their hope in God and remain obedient to him, even as they suffer for their faith. Hardships, misunderstandings, mocking, and persecution will come in the present evil age on this earth. But God, he can be trusted to make all things right. And this theme is certainly present and prevalent in today's passage. Do you all remember as a kid um, getting those connect the dot sheets? You know, you started with this empty slate and it was a blank canvas of numbers. And at least for me as a young boy, I was excited to get my pencil out and start at one and, and trace this pattern. It was probably like a cat or a dog or something like that, right? So it, at the end, as a kid, you see this rough shape emerge. You, you kind of understand, okay, there was nothing on that page before, but now I see a cat, I see a dog, whatever. Well, in a similar fashion, over the course of this week, next week, and even further weeks after that, we're going to connect the dots, as it were, on the theme of the Christian and suffering. How should we as followers of Christ suffer and suffer well? And so we're going to connect those dots, not only here in this passage, but also we're going to trace the theme of this uh, important message across the scope of Scripture. We're going to look at, at several key passages. And so today's message is going to come in three movements. First, we're going to consider the passage at hand, some of the Bible's key teaching on suffering. And then after that, we're going to examine how a few individuals lived out this teaching as recorded in the scripture. And then finally, we're going to spend a few moments contemplating how to take this doctrine, apply it to our lives today and now, and hopefully under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he will guide and direct you as to exactly what he wants you to do to become more like Christ as we leave here today. So let's begin first with today's text. We see in verses 8 and 9, Peter is essentially summarizing his entire train of thought from chapter 211 all the way through 37. What he's getting at is how do we live a holy and upright life in a world full of, of citizens that really are pushing us to rebel against our heavenly king, to entice us to give in to our fleshly lusts. How do we push back against that and do that well? He's talked about our proper response to those in authority over us in the government. He's talked about how we should respond to our bosses at work. And he's also talking, talk, talked to us about our relationships, our marital relationships in the home. So in verse 8, he gives us five adjectives that should describe us, should describe our attitude when we interact with others, regardless of our relationship or our context. 
And so I encourage you, as we go quickly through this list of five adjectives, think through Peter's emphasis on community. This is very important, on community. In fact, we have it listed up here. Some, some of this verse is listed for us up here. As a community of believers, this should mark us. So number one, he says we need to be harmonious. Or it could be like-minded. That represents how we should always be looking for ways to connect with the person with which we are speaking. How we are seeking to build a relationship with them. How we, how we are seeking to build community. He then goes on to say that we need to be sympathetic. We need, as we connect and, and learn about other people, we need to enter into life with them. We need to understand what they're going through, the ups and downs of what they're experiencing to truly get where they're coming from. Next is brotherly, which refers to love we need to have for one another in the church. It's a clear evidence of being truly born again is to demonstrate love for one another as brothers and sisters. And this goes far beyond just speaking. What we heard about in the, in the book of James, it goes to actions as well. We pray and we act as we love. Peter first emphasized this in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. But again, he comes back to this theme here. Next, he talks about us being kind-hearted or compassionate. Again, there's some overlap here, but this is essentially us pouring into the life of another person. This isn't just hearing how they're doing and saying, oh, you know, have a nice day and, and going our own way. This is us intentionally investing in them, encouraging them, refreshing them, and meeting them where they're at. And then finally, we need to do all of this in humility, in humbleness of spirit. Now, while this is typically treated as a trait of weakness in our culture, it is not... Uh, in God's eyes. This is an attitude that is foundational to the life of the believer. Later in chapter 5, verse 5, Peter tells us, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Why? For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So those five adjectives summarize what should mark our lives. But now in verse 9, Peter begins to zero in on our response to evil in verse, in verse 9 and following. When he says that we are not to return evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Why? For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. We were called for the purpose that we might inherit a blessing even in the midst of enduring evil and our response to it. Giving a blessing means simply to speak well of someone else. So Jesus, you know, and, and Peter was one of his closest, most intimate disciples. Jesus said in Matthew 5.44, pray for those who persecute you. Paul wrote, when we are cursed, we bless. 1 Corinthians 4.12. This is a compassionate way that we pursue peace. Despite 
the desire to get even or perhaps to exact revenge, as uh, might be the temptation, at least for some of us, uh, we need to imitate God's goodness to undeserving sinners. And this really is important because we are undeserving sinners ourselves. And if we truly understand the grace of God, and we truly understand the depth of our sin and the greatness of God's love for us and the greatness of his grace for us, when someone sins against us, we will show grace in return. Our Lord, in the Lord's Prayer, right? And forgive us our transgressions, even as we forgive those who transgress against us. It's the heart of grace. This goodness is what leads others to repentance. And Paul mentions that in Romans 2, verse 4. And in fact, this is really important. We are called to endure evil for that exact purpose to demonstrate forgiveness, the forgiveness we first received from God. This is what often catches the attention of our unbelieving friends, neighbors, and and loved ones in our families. The fact when we are sinned against, we respond with grace. This shows the life-transforming and supernatural power of the gospel at at work in our lives. Now, it doesn't sound pleasant, does it? And in fact, if, if you've been walking with the Lord for a while, you know you're going to take some face shots along the way, and it's going to hurt. Yet, as we carry out our calling to repay evil with good, we experience God's blessing for ourselves. And this is where Peter connects the dots in that picture for us in verses 10 to 12 as he references Psalm 34, 12 to 16. And in fact, we sang some of that psalm this morning. Verse 10, here's here's Peter's proof. For or because the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So notice, what is the blessing the Lord promised us? Life, good days, he's looking after us, he hears our prayers. What a blessing. And what's interesting is when you pull the thread on this and you look at Psalm 34, this is right at the point when, king, when David, even though he's been anointed by the prophet Samuel to be the king, he is fleeing from King Saul. And David chooses deliberately not to usurp Saul's authority. He chooses not to attack Saul, not to demean him, not to um, respond evil for evil. Instead, what did did, uh, David do? He sought peace and he cried out to the Lord. And we are the beneficiaries of that, having had Psalm 34. And so when Peter inserts this quote, he's helping his original audience to connect the dots and see, yes, David suffered under the hands of Saul, under this this tyrant of a king. But guess what, believer, suffering under Nero? You can endure. You can succeed. You can receive God's blessing, even though you're suffering persecution. And guess what? That remains instructive to us today. 
Because God's word is for us today, just like it was for them. And so if we are faced with suffering, if we are faced with persecution, we can turn back to this passage and find hope and know that we will receive a blessing from the Lord. And so if we want to enjoy the fullness of life, if we want to experience the fullness of God and his blessing, no matter our circumstances, we need to consciously turn from evil. That's part of it. In Matthew 5, 39, Jesus taught us the same, of lo- same law of love. He said, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. We are to seek peace because blessed are the peacemakers for theirs is the kingdom of God. We are blessed because the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. He is looking after us for our good. And he attends to our prayers. Unlike those where his judgment rests on those who do evil against us. So, verse 13, Peter draws a conclusion based on this um, powerful quote from Psalm 34. He acknowledges in verse 13 that if we are faithful in doing what is right, we aren't likely to suffer at the hands of others. People might not agree with us or even like us, but they will typically not bring us physical harm. Right? We see that lived out in everyday life. If you're respectful, kind, and gracious to other people, you're often not going to be persecuted. However, that isn't always the case, is it? There comes a time, even when you're kind and gracious and respectful, that you are going to suffer for righteousness' sake. And that's where he draws, us, draws our attention to in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. He acknowledges there will be times when we will be harmed, even if we're doing everything right. And I don't know about you, uh, but sometimes that surprises me when, when perhaps I'm standing for what is, what is right and good, and, I, and I'm perhaps... Um, mocked or discounted or or whatever uh, for that. That shouldn't surprise me. That shouldn't surprise you. The only perfect man to have ever walked this earth, our Lord, suffered at the hands of others, didn't he? And he did everything right. So should that really surprise us when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake? No, it shouldn't. And yet... We know that we will be blessed. Now, this is another time when, when Peter uses the word blessed. He used the word blessed here in verse 14, and then up at verse 9, he said, we are to give a blessing, right? So here in verse 14, in the context, it means we will be highly honored. We will be privileged. And yet this goes counter to everything that we experience, everything that we feel in life, doesn't it? It doesn't feel very good to be persecuted. It doesn't feel very good to be put off on the, on the side and discounted when, when you're standing up for what is right and good and true. And yet, this is what God tells us to do. This is how God tells us to think, to, to remind us that our present suffering is not a sign of punishment, but it's a sign of God's blessing, both now 
and into eternity in the future. And that's part of that experience of eternal life. As we know Christ, we experience the blessing of being with him through the very difficult times of life. And as a result of that, we should not be troubled. There at the end of verse 14, we should not fear their intimidation. We should not be troubled. That word troubled talks about being emotionally disturbed. You ever been that way where you're just so twisted up inside like a, like a knot that you just can't think straight? You, can't, you feel like you can't do anything right? You're all anxious, you're worried, you're, you're fearful. Here Peter is telling us, quoting, that we should not fear their intimidation and not allow those emotions uh, to run its course in us because we are blessed. So you replace that anxiousness, that fear, that worry, that consternation, and you remember the blessing of God and what he has done for us and what he continues to do for us. So how do we do this? You might be asking yourself, um, how, do, how do I live this out? Well, there in um, verse 14, he says, we are not to fear what men can do to us. And he, he gets this from Jesus in Matthew 10, 28. Since no one can ultimately harm us, and since our suffering is a sign of God's blessing, then we should not be troubled. We have to remember that eternal perspective. And so he goes back, and in this quotation in verse 14, he is actually connecting the dots with another passage as he fills out this portrait for us of what it looks like to suffer well. He's actually referencing Isaiah 8:12, And in context of Isaiah 8, we have King Ahaz shaking in his boots because an, an alliance between the northern kingdom of Israel and, and one of its allies, Aram, is about to come down and destroy the southern kingdom of Judah. So he is terrified. The rest of Judah is terrified. And God speaks to Isaiah, the prophet. And Isaiah reminds them to trust in the Lord for deliverance. That they only need to fear him. That if they don't fear him, if they don't trust in him, they're going to stumble, they're going to fall and be broken. And so again, Peter's connecting the dots with the time of Isaiah to his present readers and telling them, don't be fearful of Nero. Don't be fearful of what he might do to you. Trust in the Lord. Trust in his deliverance. If you trust in anything else, you will fail. And so brothers and sisters... We need to do the same today. Don't fear the future. Don't fear what is happening in the world today. Don't fear what may come, but trust in the Lord for deliverance. Like Peter's original audience, you might be asking yourself, as I ask myself, that's a lot easier said than done. However, Peter provides us with the answer. 
to overcoming such fear? What is the answer? How do we overcome that fear? And it's a natural fear, isn't it? That's a, it's an honest, it's a legitimate fear. The fear of physical suffering is a legitimate fear. But what is the answer? Verse 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Some, translates, some translations read, sanctify God as Lord in your hearts. So how do we overcome fear? By sanctifying Christ as Lord. That is to regard him reverently. This is an adaptation of Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13, where it says, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. It means to believe that Christ and not anyone else, not any of our circumstances, is really who is in control. That's really what it means. Christ is unique. He is different. He is set aside as holy. There is no one else like him. And so if we keep that perspective at all times, when we are facing adversity, when we are facing pain and suffering, when we are mocked, when we are scorned, when our brothers and sisters around the world, even today, are being beaten and persecuted for their faith, what is the answer? How do we get through that? We sanctify the Lord in our hearts. We remember who remains on his throne that he is Lord and King. I think of Peter, and I'm sorry, this isn't in my notes. Um, I think of Peter when he stepped out of the boat, when Jesus called him on the waves. Peter, when he saw Christ, he was so excited to, so excited to see his Lord, he walked on water. But what, what happened when he lost sight of Christ and he started looking around and he saw the wind and the waves and he's like, this is not natural. He, he forgot Christ and he started sinking and he cried out to the Lord, Lord, save me. You know, if you're drowning this morning and you're suffering, if you're drowning this morning because of what's going on, what you're facing, sanctify the Lord in your hearts. Keep him on the throne. He will get you through it. Peter then takes this a step further. And here's a paradox. Christians aren't simply called to suffer and be on the defensive in this cosmic spiritual battle that we are waging every day. Instead, we are called to go on the offensive. How do we do that? We are always ready to make a defense to everyone who asks us for the hope that we have. So when we are attacked, when we are suffering, it is that inward hope that we have that results in our lives being so transformed that people pause and they wonder, what is different with that woman? What is different with that man? What makes them tick? They're not acting like I thought they would. That gives us this golden opportunity to share how God has worked in our lives. We don't need to be skilled apologists. We don't need to have all the answers about everything in, in scripture. But we should be able to communicate 
why we believe Jesus is Lord and what he has done for us. And just share it in a natural way, in a natural conversation with the person who's with us. That's how we have meaningful conversations uh, with others about our faith in Christ. And this is how the gospel advances. This is how it spreads. This is how the grace of God is revealed to a lost and dying world that is, that is full of hate and pain and suffering. It's by us being real with the people around us. By us speaking the truth in love. And yet we're to do this with gentleness. Not attempting to overpower other people with the force of our personality, with aggressive tactics. But instead, we're trusting the Holy Spirit to persuade the person we're speaking to. When we encounter a hostile world and we're challenged concerning our faith, we have a temptation to respond harshly, don't we? We might be prone to attack our opponents. And sadly, from an American perspective, I think we're seeing this happen in the U.S. culture today. We see it on social media. We see it in the cultural debates that have swept uh, America in the past decade. We've lost this. And we must remain above the fray if we're to have a clear conscience and a powerful testimony before the world that watches. So keeping in mind Peter's next point, what are we to do? We are to do all of this. We are to respond with reverence. I think this is a much better translation than some translations say respect. I think reverence is the right English word here because it accurately represents the Greek word phobos, which is where we get the word phobia. And in all the other passages where Peter uses this word phobos, uh, reverence, it's always directed toward God. It's not directed to people. So we are to speak to other people with gentleness, with an attitude of reverence before God, right? So that reverent understanding of God informs how we respond to the people around us. And that makes sense in our context here, doesn't it? If we remember the holiness of Christ, if we maintain a proper fear and holy reverence for him, we're going to treat people with gentleness because we know they're made in his image and we know that we too were once alienated from him. And so we are to overcome the, the fear of persecution and suffering by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, by not focusing on our circumstances. And when we do that, we're going to respond properly. That's the answer. That's the answer. And so that leads us to verse 16. As we maintain this proper perspective, keeping Christ front and center of our thoughts and, and we act accordingly, we're going to keep a good conscience. We're going to be free from guilt. We're going to be free from shame, doubt, fear, anxiety, or despair. We're going to live a life free of unconfessed sin. And we're going to share our faith boldly when, when challenged. And as I, as I was preparing for this message, I, I was thinking back to Peter and how Peter must have thought of himself after he had denied Christ three times with a curse. That really cut Peter to the heart. 
He was using words that were neither gentle nor reverent. And so here we see Peter as an older man, I think, reflecting on some of his sins from the past, where he did not sanctify the Lord in his heart, and he was not ready to make a defense for the hope that was in him. So let's learn from Peter, the sage um, disciple and follower of Christ. He was connecting the dots in his own life. And so that leads us to the last verse in verse 17. And this is a hard truth. And this is what perhaps we don't hear in our culture today. Sometimes it's God's will for us to suffer. It's part and parcel of following him. We will suffer at times. That's God's will. And again, why this is a powerful witness for the power of God at work in us, how the gospel can transform us. So obviously, if we're suffering for doing something wrong, well, we probably deserve that. You can't claim, well, that's because I'm a Christian. No, that's because you were doing something wrong and you're being held accountable for it. So in summary... We've seen Peter provide us with answers to how we, sh we should respond to an unholy world, those five adjectives. And if needed, how do we overcome evil with good by being prepared to share the reason for the hope that is in us and share Christ and the power of the gospel to a lost and hurting world around us? So that moves us from uh, the first part of the message today to the second part. Let's connect the dots now with other passages in scripture. So we've seen already two and maybe perhaps three connections. We've seen David's response to Saul in Psalm 34. We've seen Isaiah's response to Ahaz in Judah in Isaiah 8. And we've also seen the possible allusion to Peter's own misgivings of betraying Jesus during his trial, as it were recorded in all four gospel accounts. So like Peter, the other apostles didn't always get this principle right either. In Luke 9, 51 and following verses, as Jesus was focused on heading from Jerusalem, heading to Jerusalem from Galilee, so Galilee's up north, Jerusalem's down south, he had to go through Samaria. And he was headed to Jerusalem and the days were approaching for his ascension. And as he was going through Samaria, a group of Samaritans rejected him, didn't give him and the disciples a place to stay. So again, keep in mind that Israel and Samaria were two um, people groups that were at, heads, at, at loggerheads with one another. They despised each other. They had negative stereotypes against one another. Culturally, they, they just did not get along. They were enemies. They outright despise one another. And so there in Luke 9, verse 54, this is what scripture says. When James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Destroy the enemies, wipe them out. They're the, they're the bad guys. We're the good guys. And what does our Lord say to them? And what does our Lord say to us? 
verse 56. He turned and rebuked them. He said, the son of man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Did you get that? Jesus did not return evil for evil, but he kept his mission at the forefront of what he was doing. And he reminded his disciples of his heavenly priorities and his heavenly perspective. This is a good lesson for us to consider when we find ourselves dealing with a culture that is antagonistic to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should mimic Christ. He came to save people's lives, not destroy them. And so while we might be frustrated and angry at the, at the direction, and again, this is speaking from an American perspective, we might be frustrated at, at where things are going in our country. Our ultimate goal should be to, how can we save people's lives? How are we used by God to save people's lives? How can we model grace and demonstrate the power of the gospel even when suffering? Next, we fast forward to the book of Acts. This is when the disciples finally understood Jesus' mission. And they were living in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see a number of positive examples of what it means in the book of Acts to suffer well. We see in Acts 4, we see Peter and John. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're boldly proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to the religious leaders, despite being thrown into jail. They were threatened with further punishment, but they continued on and they stated there in uh, Acts 4, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. What did they do after that? They departed, they prayed, and the result was the church began to speak the word of God with boldness. Implicit in that, God was pleased with their response. What do we need to do, church? Why aren't we seeing these types of responses? In Acts 6, we are introduced to Stephen. He's called a man full of spirit and wisdom, Acts 6.3. He's full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Acts 6.5. He's full of grace and power, 6.8. He's full of the Holy Spirit, 755. This man stands up in front of the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, and he testifies about Christ in front of this group. What's the result? He's taken outside the city and he's stoned to death. And who is there overseeing that? It's a young man named Saul who, oh, by the way, in a couple chapters, would experience the risen Christ on, his road, on the road to Damascus and who would become arguably the greatest Christian to have ever lived, the Apostle Paul. Now, would Paul have become a believer without the witness of Stephen? We don't know. We can't say for sure. But we can say that Stephen's gracious response in his suffering for doing good was formative in the life of Paul. And we see that developed as Paul's theology of suffering was fleshed out in his epistles. 
Time doesn't permit it, but there are so many more examples in Scripture that demonstrate how the Christians should suffer well. We see countless more that could be mentioned across church history. But time limits our look into the lives of these saints. And so that brings us to the final movement of our message. How do we apply what God has revealed to us today? How do we connect the dots from scripture and then draw a picture that is pertinent to our lives right now? Well, first, I encourage you to be sensitive to what the Holy Spirit is laying on your heart right now. If you're feeling convicted to confess sin in your relationships, or perhaps you need to step out in faith in some area of your life, you can silently offer that up to the Lord right now. He is attentive to the prayers of the righteous. Second, if you struggle with the fear of being shamed, mocked, or persecuted for being a follower of Jesus, encourage you, take time today to get away with him, to have, a, have an honest heart-to-heart with him. Share what is going on with you. Reflect on his greatness. Reflect on his glory. Reflect on his majesty. Reflect on his grace. Set him apart as Lord. Remember, he is God and you are not. When you do this, everything else, I guarantee it, everything else in your life will fall into place. Everything. We, we've seen this in the changed lives of the disciples. When we look at the transformation between the book of Acts and the, and the gospels, we see two very different types of disciples, don't we? It's because they finally understood what it meant to set apart Christ as Lord. They were empowered by the Holy Spirit. And what we see in the book of Acts is not some, something radically different than what we should be expecting today. Today, It's normative. That's authentic Christian living. So brothers and sisters, let us be full of the Holy Spirit. Let us sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. Keeping that divine perspective, enduring discipline, enduring suffering, enduring difficulty in the power of Christ. Because this is a blessing, both in this life and the life to come. And then finally, Peter was addressing those original communities of believers across to, uh, Asia Minor, Turkey. They're suffering together. They were loving one another in the midst of that suffering. And you know what? After Peter wrote this letter, things were going to get worse. In fact, Peter was going to die. And a lot of these men and women were going to die for their faith. Yet, they were not alone. They had the Lord, and they had one another. And so perhaps, maybe the takeaway for you this morning, as we face an unknown future together here on Okinawa, with the reality of increased persecution and suffering always possible, we can face the unknown with confidence. But we must do so together. We must build community with one another. We must love one another. 
We must go out of our ways to care for one another and really connect. To be vulnerable and transparent and bear one another's burdens. And so Christ followers are often called to suffer. For that is when the true power of the gospel is put on full display. We don't need to fear this because suffering brings blessing. Not only to us, but also to those who see us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pause uh, in, the, in all of your word this morning. Uh, we humble ourselves before you. We submit to you. You've said some hard things to us this morning. You've called us to suffer for the glory of the gospel that you might save a lost and dying world. So help us to suffer well. Help us to love well. Help us to have community well with one another. Give us grace as we serve one another, as we love one another. But God, most importantly, give us you. In Christ's name, amen. Before uh, the worship team closes for us, next week we're going to continue to connect the dots as Peter continues this discussion on the Christian and suffering. It has been described as the hardest passage to interpret in the entire New Testament scripture. So please do me a favor, read it, think about it, meditate on it, come prepared to kind of have a, a tough discussion next week. Amen? All right.